0: This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khan-Nam. And I'm Jamal Dajani. Jamal, this is our first show of the new year. Um, Welcome to all our viewers and listeners all over the world. We're co-broadcasting this from North America and from Europe, and uh, we have a really great show today. We're going to focus primarily on the as I like to say it, I told you so phenomenon of the new Israeli government. And now all of a sudden the world is up in arms about how racist, how Islamophobic, how, how theocratic it's become, things that we've been saying for decades now, Jamal, and now people are starting to finally wake up. So we're going to speak about the Israeli, uh, uh, quote, new Israeli government. I'm not sure how really new it is. It's old wine in new bottles. We're going to talk about the desecration, ongoing desecration, of Palestinian Christian Cemetery by Israeli soldiers. Um, This is a longstanding issue. This one happened to be caught on video. We're going to talk about that. Palestinians were recently given looted antiquity by a Jewish-American billionaire, Michael Steinhardt. And uh, maybe this will set a precedent for the looting that the uh, apartheid state has been engaged with for 75 years now. But before we talk about all of that, we're going to uh, watch a really wonderful interview you did with Richard Silverstein, who's the editor of Tikkun Olam, a blog that's discussing the new Israeli fascist government and uh, Mayer Kahana disciple Itamar Ben-Gavir in his recent visit to the Al-Aqsa, uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Haram al-Sharif in, uh, in Jerusalem. It's quite a good interview. That's right,
1: Jess. Uh, he will actually decipher. I don't think it needs too much deciphering the, uh, basically what is this government is all about, and uh, especially, you know, the racist, Kahanist, uh, Ben-Givir. But also I should add uh, just quickly that if we have time, we'll talk also about Kenneth Roth, the longtime director of Human Rights Watch, right. who recently Harvard Kennedy School denied him a planned fellowship and 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 why let's first watch uh, uh, richard silverstein recently israel's new government was sworn in with benjamin netanyahu returning to the prime minister's post 18 months after he was ousted the new government is mostly defined by the rise of the israeli extreme right two of its leaders known for their racist and jewish supremacist views Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Givir have been aff- appointed senior ministers. Smotrich was sworn in as the finance minister and will also serve as the minister in the defense ministry with authority over the military units in charge of civilian policy in the occupied West Bank. ben was sworn in as the national security minister with unprecedented authority over the police per a coalition agreement he will also be in charge of a new independent security force of border guard paramilitary units that operate in the West Bank and Israel. Joining us to discuss this and more is Richard Silverstein. Richard authors the Tikkun Olam blog, which is devoted to exposing the human rights abuses committed by the Israeli National Security State. His work has appeared in Haaretz, The Forward, The Seattle Times, the Los Angeles Times, and other publications. Welcome to Arab Talk, Richard.
2: Thank you, Jamal. Thanks for having me.
1: You've recently published this article entitled Judeo-Fascist Coalition Affirms Inalienable Right of Jewish People to All the Land of Israel. New Israeli government slaps U.S. in face, explicitly rejecting two-state solution. Before we delve into the details, let me begin by asking you, How does this new Israeli government slap the U.S. in the face? When Israel says that it has the
2: inalienable right to be sovereign over all the territory from the river to the sea, that basically excludes the possibility of a two-state solution. It means that there will be only one state, uh, and it will be a judeo supremacist state in which the Palestinian citizens will be subservient, as they are now, Palestinians in the West Bank will have no citizenship. They'll be stateless and probably landless. The U.S., on the other hand, supposedly supports a two-state solution. So if there can be no two-state solution because of this new Israeli government's platform, then our policy means nothing. And the U.S. government has done nothing to express its strong feelings about this. It's expressed vague uh, statements of concern for what's happening it if something down there makes unilateral uh, moves, that's a solution. But that's a useless kind of problem. It, it has no meaning. The Israelis will take it as basically sort of fluff and they will just go about what uh, they're about doing, which is uh, creating this uh, supremacist uh, state from the river to the sea.
1: Yeah, but, you know, I mean, you, you started talking about the policy, I mean, uh, which is basically a crushing rejection of U.S. policy. I mean, this this goes beyond uh, Biden. I mean, this policy has been in the books for several years now. And uh, the response was from the Biden administration is, is muted. I mean, do they have a plan or are they just going to let it go? and let Israel and let Netanyahu do whatever he wants to please and then come to Washington, D.C., and, 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 and will be given a, a hero's welcome in Congress like it happened uh, during the Obama administration. I think the difference here is that Biden
2: really doesn't uh, care about the Middle East anymore, except for Iran. Um, he has planted all of his seeds in, in the issue of China and Taiwan and Asia, to a certain extent Europe, Uh, And of course, because of Ukraine, uh, that's become a priority. But the Middle East is something he basically uh, has had experience with the failure in the Obama administration. And so he is downplaying that. And that's why the statements are so vague and so meaningless um, if Biden was really invested in this issue engaged in this issue uh, there would be a much more vigorous uh, uh, response and a more vigorous policy there's been no attempt to create negotiations between the israelis and the palestinians and if you compare it to obama there were several serious attempts to uh, broker a peace uh, deal between the israelis and the palestinians which of course israel uh, eventually uh, sabotaged. so um there's no reason why Biden he biden doesn't really care about this except I mentioned Iran. So because we oppose an Iranian nuclear program and Israel does too, so there's some effort to coordinate the approach to Iran, but that's really all that's important to Washington.
1: I'd like to talk about the most egregious figures in uh, in the new Israeli government. Uh, Tell us about uh, Smotrich and Ben-Gavir, their backgrounds, and why are they so dangerous?
2: Well, let's talk about Ben Gavir first because he's probably the more uh, significant of the two. Uh, founder, uh, a, a disciple of Mayor Kahana, an early member in Israel of Kah, his political party, which was ruled a terrorist party and uh, and and made it illegal in Israel, and also uh, the U.S. Treasury put Kah on its terrorist, uh, and then removed it, of course, about six months ago, right before the uh, fascist system came our and Bigavir has boasted before Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated that uh we will be coming for him although he probably didn't mean exactly assassination because that hadn't happened yet but um he is a I call him a judeo terrorist because he has been the mastermind of many of the terror attacks on the West Bank which has ended up with uh, uh arson attacks against the duwapsha family which uh murdered uh, almost their entire family and he has a young cadre called the Hilltop Youth, which go out and commit terror attacks, um, you know, vandalizing property, um, desecrating mosques and cemeteries. And um, he is the mastermind Behind that, he has been cited and convicted of 50 different times inciting terrorism. And let's talk now about Smotrich. Smotrich is another Orthodox Jew who was, uh, during the Gaza withdrawal in the Sharon, uh, when he was prime minister and Israel was withdrawing from Gaza, there was a, a huge, intense opposition by settler groups. And Smotris was caught by the Shin Bet with a bomb in his car. Hmm. And he was transporting the bomb to the place where he was intending to plant it as a, uh, ter- a protest against the uh, withdrawal. He was imprisoned for three weeks and detained by the Shinbat and questioned by by them. He never served in the IDF because they wanted nothing to do with him. And Ben-Gavir also was never served in the IDF. Now Ben-Gavir has uh, charge of the military police, the border uh, patrol, border uh, police that you mentioned. And uh, Smotris is basically going to control everything that happens in the West Bank, including the military presence on the West Bank. So it's just a... Uh, it's just a completely insane situation politically
1: you wrote uh, that these are the fundamental principle of this national government I mean actually you're quoting from what they publish uh, the Jewish people have sole and inalienable right to all territory of the land of Israel the government will advance and develop Jewish settlement in all parts of Israel the Galilee Negev, Golan, and uh, the the West Bank. Does this mean that Israel is now consolidating and solidifying its Jewish supremacy and apartheid status? I mean, absolutely. I mean, before it's just like yeah. uh, you know, absolutely. Absolutely around it. Yeah, they've been you know talking
2: on and off about uh, they're trying to dispossess the Bedouin in the Negev from their villages where they've lived in for for uh, generations and they're trying to move them uh, from the, these villages that they've had so that they can Judaize and create uh, Jewish settlements and colonies. In the Negev, uh, the Druze in and, and the Golan have been living there for generations, and Israel has been trying to plant new Jewish settlers and settlements in the Golan. And in the Triangle in northern Israel, which is really the heartland of the Palestinian presence in Israel, they also want to Judaize uh, that area. And the goal is uh, to either, uh, through ethnic cleansing, getting rid of the uh, Palestinians or having such a massive presence of Jews that eventually the Palestinians will be shunted aside um, and 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 possibly even driven out in some long-term process. Um, yes, this is a perfect example of Judeo-supremacy and its incipient ethnic cleansing as well.
1: Talk to me about the proposed override law, which according to your article, would ever create Israeli Supreme Court and rule of law?
2: Well, the Israeli Supreme Court is a little bit less powerful than the US Supreme Court, but what it can do is it can rule on laws and say they're, I won't call it unconstitutional because Israel doesn't have a constitution, but it can say this is a violation of what's called the basic law. So in effect, it's ruling these laws um, impermissible and uh, the, le- the Knesset can't uh, enforce the law. But the override clause, if passed by the Knesset, will say that any ruling by the Supreme Court is null and void if it goes back to the Knesset and by a vote of 61, they say that the ruling of the Supreme Court is null and void. So w- it, what that does is it renders the Supreme Court irrelevant it renders the rule of law completely uh, dismantled and it renders an independent judiciary uh, null and void. So um, you have then, you don't have an executive branch like you do in the US, but you have a legislative branch and you have a judicial branch. And the judicial sometimes exerts some kind of restraint on the legislative. In that eventuality, there's no judicial branch and the legislative people do whatever the hell they want.
1: So basically what they're proposing is really to get rid of the Supreme Court I mean you know if you have if you have the control over the Knesset uh, you'll you'll get the sixty one votes of course and uh, what I'd like to
2: say is that it'll leave the Supreme Court you know determining traffic tickets and tickets for dog you know <laughs> dogs going you uh, they're under letting their their dogs go. So that's what the Supreme Court will be left with. It will be a laughing stock. And, you know, liberal Zionists like to talk about the Supreme Court upholding human rights and um, sort of upholding the liberal humane values of the state of Israel and the democ- democratic values of the state of Israel. But, you know, they won't be able to even say that anymore. Uh, this is a naked avow- avowed fascist government, which is going to uh, place all power in the prime minister, and the Knesset and the uh, and the cabinet. Um, there will be no other forces in society that will restrain them. There won't be, the, the press will be uh, completely emasculated. They've already, by the way, they've already arrested an Orthodox Jewish reporter because he wrote a tweet in which he said, Palestinian resistance, violent resistance is legitimate. They arrested him, they questioned him for six hours in a police station. So this is what's gonna to happen to the media.
1: Well, well, actually this is what I was gonna get into next because other racist and authoritarian trends that are alarming are the stance, uh, for example, towards LGBT citizens and the, and the proposal to censor or shut down independent press. There is actually a proposal to do that.
2: Yeah, well, um, what the, the things that are really alarming to me are, first of all, homophobia. There is going to be a minister who wants to cancel a gay pride parade that happens every year in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. He wants to cancel all of that. He wants to create a Jewish national identity, which, through the education ministry, will be uh, inculcated in students. Um, and by Jewish national identity, they mean this Jewish pride, that this kahanas concept of Jewish power and Jewish pride. Um, there are. Uh, one of the major rabbis in Israel yesterday said that, um, that uh, LGBT uh, people in Israel are a, a disease. Um, and he is an important rabbi in in Israel. Um, and there was another major rabbi who had been a chief rabbi at one time, um, also said it was shameful to have a speaker of the Knesset who is gay. Now, the, the speaker of the Knesset is a far right-wing guy but he is homosexual and this rabbi told all of his followers, a lot of followers, very powerful rabbi, that this was shameful and then should never happen. So you have homophobia, then you have misogyny because they're going to in, in, uh, implement uh, public transportation and public settings where women are going to be segregated from men. So if you wanna talk about Rosa Parks in the back of the bus in the South and ending Jim Crow and her resistance, The women in Israel will be forced to sit in the back. Well, they'll be sitting in a bus where they're not be allowed. Uh, The men will be in their own buses and the women will be separate and not allowed on uh, buses with men. And in in other uh, public settings also, the women will be discriminated. But another thing is there are women who serve in the IDF. If this plan goes into effect, no more women allowed in the IDF. So you have a country that made a claim to being a Western country and like to see itself that way and compare itself to Europe, but it's going back, I mean, you could compare it to Iran probably in terms well, of it.
1: Well, why there is no outcry uh, in, in the West, especially from the uh, you know supporters of Israel. I mean, we hear the outcry uh, directed towards Iran uh, you know, recently with the demonstrations uh, by women in Iran, there is a lot of uh, media coverage. But uh, I mean, what you're been, what you're saying, only very few people know about about this. Well,
2: it's true. the uh, The European Union has been uh, basically ineffective and uh, useless on on this issue. Everyone seems to be cowed by possibly by the Israel lobby in the United States and. UK has a strong Israel lobby presence as well. Germany uh, has its guilt over the Holocaust, which has turned it into a pro-Israel state, which uh, penalizes and uh, criminalizes uh, Palestinian voices in Germany, uh, and even Jewish voices that are anti-Zionist in Germany. So Israel has manipulated a situation around the world where it's uh, emasculated a lot of the opposition. You have opposition in the grassroots, but in terms of governments, in terms of prime ministers, they're all uh, cowed about um, um,
1: being very strong about this issue. There is this uh, kind of thinking, uh, especially right here in the United States, that yeah, we recognize that uh, Israel brought in a very uh, extreme right-wing government, But hey, we know Netanyahu, Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, our darling. He's not going to allow this to happen. He said that he'll protect the LGBT rights and and then we'll we'll kind of, he'll he'll make things uh, better. I mean, do do you believe in anything uh, of this sort?
2: When Netanyahu started his career uh, after he came back to the U.S., from the U.S. to Israel, the first job he had was the manager of a, f- a furniture store. Mm-hmm. So um, he's a salesman and uh, he's used to saying whatever he needs to say to persuade people to buy the product. And he's been very successful at uh, at, at sort of pulling the wool over the eyes of these really, uh, not only these Israeli voters, but also of the entire world. And so the fact that he's been so successful is when you hear statements like that, um, yes, Netanyahu is the mature adult in the room and he's dealing with all these sort of recalcitrant uh, teenagers like Ben-Gavir and Smotris and he's going to whip them into shape and he's going to control what they do. That's not true at all. And here's a perfect example. Ben-Gavir, one of his main platforms is that Jews must be able to go to Haram al-Sharif when they want to and do what they want to do, even to pray uh, on the Temple Mount, on uh, Khram al Sharif, which is a desecration, act of desecration uh, in terms of Muslims, so he announced three days ago, I'm going to the to what they call, what the Israelis call the Temple Mount, and I'm going to uh, stake a claim to Jewish sovereignty on the, on the Temple Mount. So Netanyahu met with him, and uh, there were ca- there were cries of alarm, and this shouldn't happen, and the U.S. warned Netanyahu it shouldn't happen. Guess what? Netanyahu said to him, you can go there, but you first need to consult with the security people. So the security people told him, you're going to the Temple Mount. You're going to spend 15 minutes there. You're going to go when nobody else is there. You're going to leave and you're going to be able to say, I went to the Temple Mount. I planted my Israeli flag there. And that's exactly what happened. Despite the fact that Netanyahu said he won't be going, don't worry. I've got it under control. Guess what happened? Ben-Gavir did exactly what he wanted to do.
1: Concurrently, the, uh, the U.N. has just voted in favor of having the ICJ provide an opinion on the legal consequences of Israel's occupation of uh, Palestinian land. How will this impact the new government?
2: Well, there's two elements here. Uh, one important one is that there were 87 votes in favor of asking the ICJ for a ruling about whether the occupation uh, was illegal. The other, maybe even more important, is the International Criminal Court, which is another uh, uh, slightly different court that um, is now considering whether to open an investigation of war crimes by Israel going back to 2014 Operation Protective Edge. So we have not yet had the prosecutor general of the ICC agree to start this investigation, but at least they've accepted that they have jurisdiction over it. So we have to really watch closely about the ICC. That's really the important uh, factor here because they can find that Israel committed war crimes. Whereas the ICJ that you mentioned is just being asked to make an opinion about whether the occupation is illegal. It doesn't have any enforcement power. Um, And it can't say that uh, Israel has committed war crimes. So I think both are very important. The fact that there were 87 votes and which was an overwhelming number compared to the 24 votes and by the way the u.s voted against the resolution uh, along with israel and, and 22 other states so that tells you a lot also about our
1: sort of uh, obsequiousness towards israel what do you think is the most effective way to bring israel in line with international law i mean uh, i mean if you can bring them in line with international law through the United Nations uh, and, uh, you know, through other means, uh, uh, is it uh, uh, BDS or is it pressure from the United States or pressure from the EU?
2: Well, this is a very difficult issue obviously because Uh, when you have a fascist government, think about Nazi Germany and and, uh, fascist Italy, uh, the only way that they were toppled was by war uh, there's obviously not going to be a war against Israel um, by by the, the countries that oppose what it's doing. Um, so the uh, the other options are the ICC um, trying to keep pressuring international bodies as Israel goes farther and farther to the right um, to take more active action. BDS is of course another very important legitimate uh, cause if we can get. Uh, financial investment to stop from bank, international, global banks and global entities. Um, if we can, for example, what what I've called for is for states, if they really object, call recall their ambassadors, cut off relations with Israel. We may not be at that point where that's uh, an acceptable kind of point of view, but um, regarding the ben gavir visit the the governments around the world have denounced this, and the United Arab Emirates has called for a hearing before the Security Council. So these are the kinds of actions which have to be ratcheted up. There has to be constant pressure against uh, to, uh, against the Biden administration and the other European countries and, and, and um, for them to be more aggressive about this. And, uh, it's a very complicated issue because Israel is very powerful. It has the ninth uh, strongest army in the world, uh, very strong, thriving economy. So from its point of view, it can just sit there and do whatever it wants. So um, we're we're not going to be able to move Israel very easily. It's going to be a very long-term process, I'm afraid.
1: Uh, one final question: Ben givir is uh, a loose cannon, even uh, you know, for the. For Benjamin Netanyahu and the Israeli government, uh, he didn't. As as you've mentioned, you know, he decided to go to Haram Sharif, and the, the government just ha- has barely been sworn in. Uh, what if he decides to come to the United States? And uh, and and this is the question: How will the USA allow him to come in, to come in, having been indicted uh, with a uh, fifty charges, you know, for criminal record? Uh, have been uh, for years calling uh, for uh, the expansion of of Palestinians, uh, inciting hatred and attacks on Palestinians. And the United States usually um, don't allow citizens of other countries with criminal records to come to the United States. Well, we've heard from
2: uh, the Biden administration uh, about a week ago that um, they're considering a policy that if any Israeli has been accused of a violent act against their Palestinian, that they will not be admitted to the United States. And that is <clears throat> an implied statement about Smotrich and Ben-Gavir. Um, but that's very far from saying he is now persona non grata. He will not be admitted to the United States. In addition, these are things I've been advocating in my writing over the past few the Israeli embassy in Israel should not. The I'm sorry. The U.S. embassy in Israel should declare that it will have nothing to do with Smotris and Ben gavir as because they are Judeo terrorists and the U.S. government is opposed, supposedly opposed to terrorism. Um, that's not a policy that they're prepared to, uh, to 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 engage with. But it's very important that the U.S. make this stand and make it very clear. And the fact that we haven't done this really sends a signal to Israel that they can continue to get away with whatever they want and we won't stand
1: in the way. Richard Silverstein, thank you for sharing your insights on Arab Talk. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: That's the voice and the face of Richard Silverstein, the editor of Tikkun Olam, the blog, and he's discussing the current Israeli fascist government and the Meir Kahana. Uh, disciple and um, kind of supporter, Itamar Ben-Gavir. I mean, really, Jamal, was a good interview. Don't get me wrong. But is he really saying anything different than we've been saying for decades here on Arab Talk? I mean, for me, I mean, my what I've been writing about, you know, to people who will listen is that I told you so. So we've been saying this. We've been reporting on this. And now why is the world so surprised that the Israeli government is racist,
1: fascist, theocratic, and um, the way it is? I don't get it. Well, in a way, I mean, of course, Richard Silverstein has a lot of uh, knowledge and, and, and in-depth knowledge about the Israeli government and the, basically the Israeli society uh, at large. But just uh, yes, the mask has fallen. So now, I mean, you've been talking about it, and there, people were burying their heads in the sand or hiding behind their mask, and all the apologists, apartheid, I call them apartheid apologists, they've been defending, you know, Israel is a democratic society. In fact, they say it's the most democratic society in the Middle East or the only democracy in the Middle East and the only or, or the only moral or the most moral army in the Middle East. The mask has dropped now and okay. i'd rather see these cooks which i will call them cooks in the government exposing all the lies and 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 taking off all that pretense because as you said to me it doesn't make a difference whether you have the the KUd or the labor party or any party in control uh, you know it's it's uh, what did you say? Old wine in new bottles. That's the that that's the name old of it. Old wine in
0: new bottles. But I guess I'm a little less. How shall I say this? Um, I, I'm still kind of of the opinion that you know this is something that we've been saying for so many years now, and so many decades, and and to say that the mask is off. The mask has come
1: off for decades. The mask has been off for a very long time, Jamal. To you, so many time... to you, to you, to me, and people who know and can see through the mask. But for the vast majority of people, they drank the Kool-Aid, yes. And let's let's let But they're still drinking the Kool-Aid because yeah, let me I tell don't... you how
0: they're still dr- Let me tell you how they're still drinking the Kool-Aid because you have President Biden saying that he looks forward to meeting with his good friend. Okay, Benjamin. well,
1: not a different, different story, I have to say. He, Biden has drank the Kool-Aid a long time ago. He knows the truth deep in his heart, but he chooses to bury his head in the sand. Exactly, Jamal. And the fact is, is that the
0: world, uh, and perhaps rather than saying that the mask is off, the, the world continues to see ever so clearly this kind of, we won't say the only democracy in the Middle East, but the most racist theocracy in the Middle East may be another way of talking about it. The only apartheid state in the Middle East, this racist,, uh, basically hateful government. And what's interesting about what's happening now, Jamal, is that the 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 there's a large segment of Israeli society who who are, Jewish citizens, but say darker skinned or from Africa or of Arab descent, who are really seeing the full breadth and the depth of the racism and the hatefulness that this government has towards all people of color, color whether or not they're Palestinian or not. So I, I think that, uh, you know, the fact that, for example, the United Nations now wants to investigate Ben-Gavir's visit, uh, I don't even want to
1: call it to uh, visit, Jamal, a probably oh, Storming yeah, up. St- storming of I the Red 100- Gavir goes with a whole battalion of Israeli uh, border p- police. Exactly, to them. exactly. So, you know,
0: and now the Israeli ambassador to the UN says he they want to punish the UN for investigating and having a committee to investigate these uh, these these kind of racist, uh, provocative practices. So. I mean, I'm, I'm. We're going to talk more about this. It's glad that you had that. I'm glad that you had that interview with Richard Silverstein. But let let's be clear. It's not as if there's been any change in U.S. policy because the Biden administration has said nothing. The only thing that they're going to do, the State Department has said nothing. The only thing that they're going to do that I read about is that they're going to send a a national security expert to speak with uh, the Netanyahu government uh, next week but all that means is that they're going to say things privately, which they will never say publicly. And, you know, I, I, I'm I, sad that I have to say this, but uh, it's kind of a weird thing that I'm going to say, so please bear with me. I'm kind of, there's a part of me, even though this is going to cause great harm and destruction to Palestine and to Palestinians, there's a part of me that actually is glad that this kind of uh, exposure to the theocratic, racist, hateful uh, Israeli apartheid regime is is in full view for the entire world to see. And, and don't get me wrong, Palestinians are dying every day. More land is being taken every day. More people are being imprisoned every day by the Israeli military. It's a, it's a horrific situation, but the reality has to be seen by the world.
1: Well, uh, and to add to this, which will go to our next story, yes, but uh, of course the United Nations is now investigating Israel to determine its uh, egregious uh, violations of human rights in, uh, on, you know, in, the, in the West Bank. But also, just recently, Israel, just to, to, to show you where its intention to, uh, they have imposed new restrictions on the Palestinians for going to the United Nations and prevented Right, Palestinian foreign minister from returning. Right. Well, Mr. Maliki, they told him his basically entrance visa has been cancelled. So, and of course, they have. They have. I mean, this is basically this is. You know, I mean, we always we've always said that the Oslo Accords are not worth the paper that uh, they've been written on, and and that's an example of this because now. The Palestinians of course they cannot fight back if they do fight back they're accused of terrorism they go to the united nations to complain they cannot god forbid they cannot do that they want to go to the international criminal court to complain you cannot do that i mean i mean this is the israeli the apartheid israeli government that the world has to contend with and then put a smile you know president biden you've mentioned to say Oh, here is my dear friend, Benjamin Netanyahu. We've known each other for many years. This is the government you are supporting. But, you know, uh, our calls fall on deaf ears, unfortunately, when it comes to uh, U.S. foreign policy and, right. and basically... Right. but uh, at the same time... We... And French and German, etc.
0: Yeah, but uh, th- this is now, and it's something that I know that we've talked about for quite some time, Jamal, is that this is having significant national security negative consequences not only for the United States but for the entire world you had Jordan one of the so-called biggest allies of the apartheid regime in the Arab world coming out and strongly condemning a response that said well Jordan occupied uh, Palestine why shouldn't we it was a it was a crazy statement so you had there one of strongest allies condemn the 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 kind of apartheid regime. And then you had Oman. This is a story that kind of went below the radar, but it's important to talk about the new kind of ruler in Oman basically criminalizing uh, kind of normal trade relations with the apartheid regime. And Oman was supposed to be kind of a light Abraham Accord uh, party you know, they were supposed to be one of the Arab countries in the Gulf that was kind of, you know, playing, you know, economic ball with the Israelis, they've come down really strong in terms of their public statements. So I would say that the um, and we've talked about the Morocco and the other Abraham Accord countries, who are, you know, uh, rethinking their kind of support of this uh, apartheid, uh, uh, theocratic regime. So it's, it's going to have negative consequences. It's changing the geopolitics of the region. The Israeli apartheid regime is cozying up with Russia right now. So
1: let's, we're going to continue seen, to really we, call we, this out. We've seen where, uh, where these Abraham Accords, Jess, and the so-called normalization at the World Cup. We've seen the sentiment exactly. of the Arab masses at the World Cup. So uh, for our viewers and listeners, there's a major difference between what governments do and what the populations really uh, feel. And, and that sentiment and feeling and the support uh, for Palestine was very obvious and the rejection of uh, apartheid. Israel was very visible. I mean, you couldn't deny that. So they can play all these games uh, that, they, that they want. They're not going to win the hearts of the of, of the masses moving on to our next story just cctv footage uh, from the jerusalem protestant cemetery showed israeli colonial settlers smashing crosses and throwing stones and marble on graves in occupied east jerusalem over the new year eve holiday uh, basically this is a historic uh, Cemetery. It's uh, you know. It's uh, right, right. I think was was set up in the the 1800s. And um, did you hear that story being covered on Fox? Nothing, News, Jamo- CNN.
0: Nothing. Or any of that footage? Nothing. Nothing. A complete silence about this, and uh, it goes to show you that the apartheid regime is an equal, hateful. A regime against Palestinian Muslims and Palestinian Christians. In fact, it doesn't matter if you're a Palestinian Christian or Muslim. They're going to the the colonial settlers will attack and and attempt to desecrate and uh, you know engage in their hateful in their hateful actions against any Palestinian, irrespective of their hate. This is a really important story, Jamal, because you know the part of the Israeli Hasbara is that well, this is a clash of Islam versus Judaism and. As we've been talking about for so many years now it's it's painfully obvious to palestinians and really informed people that this is really nothing about religion it's about colonial exploitation and apartheid irrespective of anybody's faith so this is a really important story we saw nothing about it on any of the media anywhere in the united
1: states so well, let me share, story. Something, share something with you. This is not only big and also very disturbing, but it has been happening many, many times yes. in, in several cemeteries. And uh, on a personal level, yes. uh, the cemetery is uh, near the Hood, you know, where my family has lived there for generations. Which we have private cemetery outside our homes, which is the also the, got desecrated. The yeah. Uh, by the Israeli colonial settlers, but this is the first time, I think, that something was caught on camera. And so they left caught on camera, and I'm sure their intentions were to pin it, you know, to try to say, Muslims did that uh, to Christians or whatever, but uh, they weren't aware, of course, of the cameras. And of course, now what the Israeli government, after facing that embarrassing thing and condemnation from the Episcopal Church right here in the United States, that oh we're uh, we don't have the identity of the perpetrators and we are uh, still uh, uh, looking for them or or uh, investigating. Well,
0: yeah, but you know the 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 kind of con- con- to contextualize the story in light of what we're talking about the desecration of uh, Palestinian cemeteries, whether they're Muslim or Christian. The the kind of contextualized part of this story is that with the election. Of the uh, of the Netanyahu Ben gavir government, it's giving license, mm-hmm. even more license and approval of these colonial settlers to exact, you know, revenge, hate, hateful attacks uh, on any Palestinian. It's open hunting season now on Palestinian Muslims and Christians, Palestinians anywhere. Both. In nineteen forty-eight and in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem and in Gaza, it's giving them license because one of the thing and that we, we, we don't have time to talk about this today, Jamal, but one of the things that the Netanyahu government is doing is disempowering other aspects of the Israeli uh uh you know government. So for example, the the Supreme Court and the judicial system is being disempowered, other uh you know, offices of the state are being disempowered, giving more power to the executive uh, Netanyahu and his cabinet members who are flat out kahanas, racist, you know, kind of, um, you know, white supremacists. There's no other way to call it. These are European white supremacists who are, who are running the asylum now, Jamal. And, uh, you know, that's part of the context for why we're seeing these uh, attacks on Palestinian cemeteries, attacks on Palestinians. And an
1: uptick in violence and uh, theft among Palestinians now. That's right. And in another watershed event, and uh, and uh, actually this is something for me to look at and uh, to examine more, just because it's it's yeah. uh, it's a first. Uh, the U.S. Uh, gave back uh, to Palestinians yes. looted antiquity by uh, the possession of Jewish American billionaire hedge fund manager michael uh, steinhard i mean will this set a precedent to go after others i mean we know that there are thousands and thousands of looted antiquities starting from pre-1948 to 1967 uh, you know when israelis were looting left and right when they came to the uh, to the west bank uh, uh, and then infamous uh, in for that is moshe dayan who was their defense yeah. uh, minister I mean, he had a, um, he used to brag about his collection. And of course, those are looted antiquities taken from Bethlehem, from Jerusalem, from Jericho, and so on. And somehow they made their ways because they're worth a lot of money to collectors right here in the United States and in Europe. And And this is the first time, it just, I don't know why, they, they selected one, which is one object, which is uh, described as a, cosmetic spoon tool uh, carved from ivory and dating between 800 and 700 B.C. and it was used to ladle incense on fires and and braziers at rites, you know, uh, venerating the gods and and the dead. A winged figure was etched on it. And they gave it back to the Palestinian Minister of Tourism and Antiquities, uh, Rula, Maaya, who met with the American delegation. I'm sorry for being so, um,
0: let's see, again, I have to be careful about my choice of words, Uh, so uninspired by this story, Jamal, because I think this is uh, Israeli Hasbara. I don't see it as setting any precedent. There are thousands and thousands of looted antiquities at uh, the apartheid state and uh, Israeli apologists like Michael Steinhardt have and the fact that they give one spoon back to a Palestinian minister and they have this, you know, grand kind of news conference about it. I'm sorry. It's, it doesn't inspire me to feel good. It doesn't inspire me to feel like there's going to be a wholesale Reclamation and return of Palestinian stolen antiquities,
1: and let's let's not. Well, I mean, to me, it's diff- a little bit different just because this is the first time that they didn't decide to look the other way. Because, as you know, they are uh, the uh, like the FBI or or. Oh yeah, uh,
0: but why isn't this just they're... a feel-good story? Why isn't mm-hmm. this just
1: an attempt at a feel-good story? What in light of... to me, it yeah. sets a precedent. This, of course, to 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 give it more context in. In, in 2021, after investigators seized 180 stolen antiquities valued at, 100, at, at $70 million from Steinhardt, you know, and he they found this piece in his possession. That's part of a big, yeah, yeah. big raid. And then they decided, well, it was stolen from Hebron, actually, and it uh, made its way it uh, it uh, surfaced on the international art, art market back in 2003, right. when uh, Mr. Uh, Steinhardt bought it from an Israeli antiquities dealer who has been accused of dealing in hundreds of illicit uh, Middle Eastern treasures, at least 28 of which were sold to Mr. Steinhardt.
0: Yeah, it's hard for me to feel good about it, to be honest. I think that... Uh... You know, uh, we can only hope that it'll set a precedent, but let's let's remember, not only was art and uh, historical artifacts looted from Palestine, the entirety of historic Palestine has been looted. So one spoon
1: in the history of uh, a looting of an entire nation. What it, is, it is a recognition yeah. that something was looted by the United States because usually... Yeah, yeah. media and the government, they play games. Oh, this is disputed territory. It's not occupied. It's uh, it's not fallen. It's this. It's disputed. And now at least there is a recognition that this piece of antiquity uh, has to be returned to the rightful owners.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, I I, I like, I'm saying this more and more to people who will listen, Jamal, because this is a really important kind of larger 30,000 foot kind of picture this is yet another example of what we've been saying for such a long time this is not uh, the the kind of typical thing that the israeli husbandistas say well there's two sides to everything you know this is the israeli view this is the palestinian we have a difference of a, this is not a difference of opinion this is straight out occupation colonial settlement colonial you know colonialism and and theft, theft. Of, an, and theft of an entire you know history of a nation its land its its antiquities and an attempt to rewrite the history there's no two sides here jamal there's one side and uh this 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 spoon maybe in giving it back is a reflection of an of a a process to kind of eliminate this fiction of two sides of a story when it comes to the question of Palestine. there's no two sides here jamal and
1: our final story jess And this is something we have discussed time and time again. Of course, mostly what happens on college campuses with our (laughs) interviews with many professors, including Dr. Rabab, Abdel Adi, and others in the United States, in Canada, in Britain, and so forth. Kenneth Roth, the longtime director of Human Rights Watch, 29 years, Jermon In In there for 29 years. Yeah, yeah. Said that Harvard University School, Kennedy School, denied him a planned fellowship because of, his, of, his, of the organization's work on Israel. And there is a big article about this. People want to learn about it in the nation. Yeah, uh, it's a good article. And, and, and so basically the, the story goes is shortly after he stepped down, which that's the norm, as director of Human Rights Watch, uh, last April, he was offered a fellowship at the Carr Center for Human Rights at the Kennedy School. They it, offered it to him. Yeah, they invite, ask him. for it. Yeah, no. he didn't. He didn't apply for it. Jamal, he was offered. They came to him. Then, this then Douglas Elmendorf, the Kennedy School school's dean, intervened to reject his fellowship. He you know so so after he got invited the dean basically vetoed the scholarship and and what uh, Roth said Elmer uh, Elmenbroff asked him during a meeting whether Roth had any enemies and I'm <laughs> quoting here and he said I knew it what he was driving at uh, said Roth who who is Jewish it's always Israel so he knew kind of like when right. he was asking about this and then of course he he um, he goes further that. Basically, uh, the school or uh, the, the the dean was under pressure from donors to reject uh, his uh, uh, fellowship, which, by the way, the school denies. But the faculty of the Carr Center rejected these allegations. That's what they say. And and, and uh, I don't know. Well, I mean... But I mean, here, here, here's the thing. Who we do believe but...
0: here, right? Yeah, but... But here's the thing, Jamal, you have you have an individual who is among the most respected human rights leaders, not just in the United States, but the world. He helped build Human Rights Watch. Human Rights Watch is among the most respected human rights organizations globally. He is one of the foremost authorities on human rights. They came out, you know, as we reported within the last year on a report saying that uh, Israel engages in a pattern and practice consistent with apartheid. Then that's when the Hezbollah, you know what, hit the fan. So, you know, the, you, you, you know in academia, they, they attempt to hide this kind of behind-the-scenes kind of pressure by pro-Israel groups. This was not hidden, and Roth knew exactly what was going on. He was denied a position that was offered to him because of the human rights report on, claim, on you know, kind of identifying Israel as an apartheid state.
1: I mean, Jamal, are, are we really surprised by this? Not at all. And here is the funny thing. They're trying to spin the story by saying, you know, this happens sometimes. Maybe the school, had, that has nothing to do with his stance on Israel, but it could be because he's a controversial figure and sometimes the school does not want to attract attention. And here's the funny thing about it, uh, uh, just the uh, uh, the Kennedy School has hosted a long list of controversial fellows with fewer fewer credentials than Roth, including you wanna laugh, former <laughs> Trump officials, Sean Spicer, remember him? Anyone? remember two, Sean yeah. Spicer. Yeah, uh, how Trump and and saying that there were whatever hundreds of thousands of people during the inauguration and all these lies, it didn't last that long. And Corey Lewand- uh, uh, Lewandowski, Lewandowski, yeah, 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 they were yeah. hosted there, you know. And and I don't know about the credentials of Sean Spicer compared to somebody who basically uh, established this organization and put it on the map like Human Rights Watch, and that's the spin that is. Uh, going on. And, uh, uh, this comes on the heels of the, uh, Harvard students newspaper, the Crimson, basically, which provoked, uh, an outcry for some faculty and prominent alumni after it endorsed a boycott of Israel last year. So Harvard is in real trouble. I mean, the administration, this is not the sentiment of the students there i mean imagine the crimson and its law and its law review whenever they I right. identified israel as an apartheid state and they're coming hard on and on mr roth it's not he's not alone as you know maybe his organization was one of the several organizations that basically said israel is an apartheid states not amnesty international did that israel's is own a human rights organization, Beth Salem. It's kind of, well, Jamal, it's it's, it's, it's I mean, really depressing is, to for academic what, freedom.
0: Well, yeah, well, I'm not sure we have academic freedom when it comes to Palestine. We know that, Jamal. But again, I'm going to sound, this is going to sound somewhat cynical, but uh, I'm kind of even though I feel sorry for Roth, because I think he's just an extraordinary human rights activist, kind of glad it happened. Again, it's part of this thing that we continue to talk about, that this needs to be exposed. And this is an obvious example. It came out in The Nation. You know, maybe it didn't come out on CNN or CBS or NBC or anything like that. But this will come up in other academic, uh, this will come up in other academic spaces to be talked about. And I can assure you that um, the sentiment of emmendorf and Harvard does not represent the totality of what the academic community feels about the apartheid state of Israel. Um, so they conti- the, the Hasbaristas in Israel continue to overplay their hand, Jamal. They never miss an opportunity to shoot themselves in the foot and overplay their hand. This will come back. This will backfire on them, as as all these others have.
1: You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.